0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its
1: tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 24th, 2023. Today, it's part two of our Lawfare year-end event. Yesterday, we brought you the headliner conversation with Adam Kinzinger. Today, it's three panels of Lawfare insiders talking about the year to come and the year that's passed. We did a panel on democracy, the Trump trials and related matters. We did a panel on cybersecurity, cyber defense and AI, and of course, we did a panel on foreign policy and the various crises that are overtaking American foreign policy. And then we took audience questions, so it's a pretty packed episode, and I hope you enjoy it. It's the Lawfare Podcast Year-End Event Part 2, A Conversation with the Lawfare Team. I wanna say each of these panels is gonna go pretty fast. We're gonna to try to take a look back at the last year, look forward at the next year, and we're gonna do a little bit of uh, focus in each case on uh, kind of lawfare and what we're trying to do uh, in this context. Um, so Quinta, uh, get us started. And for, for each of these, and this goes for all the panels, uh, people probably know who you are, but uh, give us one sentence of introduction to yourself. Um, so, um, Quinta, you know, this is among other things an election year, although it uh, uh, feels like that's still pretty far away. Um, you know, we're less than a year out from the election. Uh, what are your concerns about the year to come in the electoral contexts, um, are you principally thinking about information environment issues, are you principally thinking about violence and political uh, uh, intimidation kind of things, and to what extent do you think the we're institutionally well prepared uh, for any of that? Thanks so much, Ben.
2: Um, so just to introduce myself, uh, I'm Quinta Jurassic. I'm a senior editor at Lawfare, and I... Write about uh, sort of law, democracy, and the internet, and how they interact. Um, in terms of your your question, Ben, about what I'm principally concerned about, I think my uh, succinct answer is yes. I'm principally <laughs> concerned about all the, all of the things um, you mentioned, of course. Uh, the concerns about political violence, concerns about the information environment. I think those are very much front of mind um, on the realm of the information environment. So a lot of what we saw in 2020 was a really a systematic effort by the federal government, by local and state election officials, by tech companies, and by independent researchers to help uh, election officials identify and address uh, potentially harmful falsehoods. So, you know, stuff about the vote being stolen and so on and so forth. Um, that obviously wasn't perfect. We didn't have January 6th, but it worked pretty well on the day of the election. That system is essentially under attack and being dismantled um, by many Trump backers who see it as you know, a form of censorship, a democratic effort to steal the election, whatever you want to call it. Um, and as part of that, we are also seeing some really concerning attacks, uh, both in in the terms in excuse me, in the sense of you know real physical, Uh, attacks, threats, harassment, um, and litigation against election workers and against entities that are trying to provide support to election workers. So in that sense, I think one of my big concerns um, is really to what extent just the systems for administering elections and for allowing them to move forward smoothly are going to be able to hold up um, under the coming strain. I I will say, I think I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, the the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling, finding that Trump is disqualified as an insurrectionist from appearing on the Colorado ballot um, as a candidate for the presidency. Of course, that um, has been stayed and will presumably go before the Supreme Court. Um, But, you know, this question of can Trump even be elected as president at all is sort of one more element of potential chaos uh, that has now been... Uh, pretty clearly introduced into the mix, and I think we're all going to have to to grapple with. And really, it's just another demonstration of how much we're dealing with uh, in 2024 that is unprecedented. We've never had to deal with a lot of these issues before, and so it's not only that many of these systems are under attack or under different kinds of strain; it's that they've never experienced this. And so uh, there's an element of just sort of trying to figure out our way um, in a
0: a real minefield. Excellent. Um... So Natalie, uh, you know, a lot of people, you and I have both gotten this a fair bit. People ask us, uh, you know, Lawfare is spending so much time doing backward looking stuff at, uh, January 6th, which of course was in January 6th, 2001, not January 6th, 2024. Um, and, uh, they say sort of justify this. What what does any of this have to do with hard national security choices in a in a prospective fashion? Um, and uh, rather than try to answer that question myself, I want to kick it to you because you know why do the hard work yourself when you can have Natalie answer these questions? So uh, yeah, why are we uh, why are we so obsessed with the past? Is it is it Trump derangement syndrome or is something else going on?
1: Um, thanks, Ben. I'm, I'm happy to answer the hard questions that you don't feel like answering. Um, I'm Natalie Orped, I'm the executive editor at Lawfare. Um, no, it is it is a great question. And, you know, I think as we were talking about earlier, it wouldn't have occurred to any of us a decade ago to say that the top threat to America is internal threats to democracy. So I suppose it's worth saying at the get-go that law for, lawfare takes the position that democracy is key to who we are. And so threats to democracy are threats to our national security. We we lawfare do not believe that our going is secure if we are not fundamentally a democracy. That's who we are. Um, So it's true that we are doing a lot of looking back, um, although I I question the premise to some degree but we do spend a lot of time on backward looking things interpreting what's happened looking at how responses are going now to what happened on january 6th um so as as we've talked about we have done a lot of coverage of the january 6th committee which was of course an investigation of what led up to january 6th what the causes were um We've done a lot on the criminal prosecutions, which I think Roger will speak about later of the um, individuals who are involved in the attack on the Capitol. Um, And we've done a lot of analysis of some of the issues that, for example, that Quinta was talking about in terms of how our information ecosystem may have led to January 6th. Um, That may all seem Backward looking, but it is all backward looking in the sense that we are trying to figure out a way to assign accountability for things that have happened that that led to uh, this existential threat to our democracy. That January sixth is a stand-in term for, but of course there is much more to it um, than simply that date, or simply the attack on the Capitol, or even simply the the theory that led to the attack itself. Um, you know, so so finding accountability is important because that's what what will allow us to um, try to protect against threats going forward. Um, you need to be able to identify what went wrong in order to be able to fix it. Um so a lot of our work does that. Um, but I will say, you know we we are not only looking at January sixth and the attendant, issues. Um, we are also looking at some of these more, um, let us say technical or institutional aspects of our democracy and how they have been under threat and what we should do about it. So you know we we spend a lot of time looking at Congress. We look at separation of powers issues, you know, how healthy are our are, are our democratic institutions. Um, we've spent a lot of time looking at from various directions, including some that Quinta mentioned at political violence, at domestic extremism. These are also things that are fundamental threats to our democracy. Um, you know, is is our criminal justice system, are the statutes that we have available and under the criminal law able to address political violence in this country? are we are we ready to be a country that regularly has to contend with, the possibility, probability, or definite um, existence of political violence on a regular basis. We have elections every two years. Um, we look at a lot of rule of law issues. Um, so some things may seem a little bit um, far from the core of democracy, but we, we sort of take the implicit, uh, which I will make explicit, a position that things like whether there is a sense of legitimacy to the legal profession. Quinta has done some very good work on this um, with respect to bar discipline and legal ethics and the lawyers who have been involved with these sort of fundamental threats to democracy. Um, We take the position that that that's important. We take the position that privacy issues are important to a healthy democracy. So we we look at surveillance. We look at... um, things like data brokers and sharing of information. Um, We look at democracy threats in other countries. We've, uh, you know, I I was looking before we got on at some of our coverage over the last year and it's included, you know, Guatemala, Argentina, Brazil. Um, We did a a very long series on the judicial reforms in Israel. Um, And then in the meantime, we're still following things that are um, a little bit more uh, connected to earlier days of, um, of lawfare, including Guantanamo and continued threads coming out of the, the Mueller investigation and such. Um, and all of these go to the question of how secure our democracy is now, doing a close analysis and examination of where we stand now, and trying to find accountability for what has gone wrong and what the main threats have been and looking toward the future to figure out how how we can mitigate them and how we can fix the problems that are fixable.
0: Excellent. All right, so let's bring this down to the level of the various uh, federal criminal cases um, uh, against former President Trump, specifically those in D.C. and South Florida, Roger. Um, uh, the one in South Florida seems to be, you know, on proceeding at the pace of cold molasses, and the one in D.C. is now on hold as the Supreme Court decides uh, some uh, a, a preemptive question of, of presidential immunity. Uh, what do you see as the greatest obstacles the government faces in getting these cases to trial and winning convictions? And to what extent do you see that as likely to happen this coming year, or, or is this something that's likely to get pushed back until after the election uh, in 2024?
3: Thank you, Ben. Um, and I'm Roger Parloff. I'm a senior editor here, and uh, Uh, I'm a longtime legal journalist, and a long, long time ago, I practiced law for a little while, mainly criminal law. Um, The uh, the timing is uh, the crucial issue in both cases, it appears. Um, In the D.C. case, um, uh, you know, there really aren't that many uh, legal obstacles except the one where stalled by right now, the the, uh, immunity issue. And it's a question of first impression, so it's important in that respect, but it's really a pretty weak argument in in terms of uh, looking at the Supreme Court issues. So uh, if we can, I'm optimistic that we will get through these uh, pellet reviews and still get that case to trial uh, before the election, uh, it's different in in the Southern District of Florida. Uh, we're not on track for the. She had set a, a trial date in May. We're not on track for that. Um, she is. Uh, she's very inexperienced. She is very skeptical of the special counsel's office reflexively. So uh, we don't know exactly why. And then there are also some very uh, imp- difficult. Procedural issues; um, they would not necessarily be difficult because it's a. That's the classified, you know, uh, that's the docu- the case for willfully retaining classified or national defense information and obstruction of justice. So it has a lot of issues that arise under the Classified Information Procedures Act, and those issues are pretty well defined in the Fourth Circuit because we have a lot of cases coming out of um, the Eastern District of Virginia, the District of Maryland, District of DC. uh, But we don't have a lot in the, that have reached the 11th Circuit. That means nothing is binding on this judge who, as I say, is highly skeptical of uh, almost everything the special counsel does. So that one, I really don't see We, I suspect there will be another, there will be an interlocutory appeal in that one as well. And uh, so I don't think that one's going to get done before the election.
0: Representative Kinzinger was saying the that there's, you know, describing a complicated interaction between the political process and these cases. Um, of course, in the cases themselves, you're not allowed to admit that there's any interaction. Um, but I think the judges are actually pretty savvy that there's a a real interaction and that they're in dialogue with the political process here. In your watching of these cases, how does that work?
3: It's interesting because uh, I was thinking a lot is being left unsaid. I don't think anyone writes in a brief, we need to do this before the election, because if he's elected, he's going to get rid of these cases somehow. Everyone knows that, but no one writes that down. And I think that's strategically the best thing to do, because if you believe in enormous presidential power, uh, you know, m- maybe that's legitimate. But uh, I think that most judges don't want this to be resolved that way. As far as the, you know, the political impact of these cases or a conviction, it's sort of way beyond my, uh, you know, if I have any expertise, it's not that. Um, and certainly, I don't see these having any, any positive, uh, you know, political impact, it seems the opposite. Same with the Section 3 case just now, uh, everything in yours to, to Trump's benefit. So uh, you still have to do the right thing. Um, and and so will things change at the last minute if he's convicted? Uh, I I just don't know.
0: All right. Uh, so, Anna, um, back when a grand jury in Fulton County uh, in August returned this uh, astonishing, sprawling nineteen-defendant racketeering indictment, we wrote that. Uh, the very ambition of the indictment carries risks. Uh, so, talk to us about those risks, and uh, to what extent have they have we seen them play out? To what extent have prosecutors uh, sought to and effectively mitigated them?
4: Yeah, so I, I will start out by saying that I'm Anna Bauer, the Law Affairs Legal Fellow and sometimes roving courts correspondent, uh, and uh, happy to be here, and, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, so, Ben, I, I will start by saying that although I I still do believe it's an incredibly ambitious document, it's actually not as ambitious as it could have been. Uh, we learned after writing that piece when the special grand jury report was released that, in fact, there were many more people who had been recommended for indictment in Fulton County than than were actually prosecuted. so it's, it's actually something that I think from the outset, prosecutors tried to mitigate some of the risks by kind of narrowing that, that field of people who they, they sought indictments for down to 19 as opposed to, you know, 30 plus. Um, but in terms of some of these other risks, I think you can uh, divide it into three buckets. Uh, the first is these kind of logistical challenges with a sprawling indictment like this. Uh, prosecutors in Fulton County have estimated that the state's case in chief will take about four months. That doesn't count jury selection. That doesn't include the defense's case. Uh, and that's already you know a lot to ask of a county prosecutor op- prosecutor's office that doesn't have the resources or the manpower of, for example, the Department of Justice. Um, and that becomes even more complicated when you factor in potential speedy trial demands. We saw Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell did uh, demand speedy trials, which uh, you know further complicated things. Then you have the, the fact that some of these defendants are former federal officials who were almost certainly going to seek to remove their case from state to federal court. So you have a worst case scenario in August, as as we're you know before anything has played out, where potentially Fonnie Willis is looking at. Multiple trials that would last for months on end, potentially some in state court, some in federal court. Uh, and, and so that just was a real logistical kind of problem uh, facing prosecutors at the outset. Uh, what we've seen so far is that they have effectively managed some of those logistical risks by, for example, being willing to uh, enter some generous plea deals. They they did that with Chesbro and Powell, uh, and then also successfully reached plea deals with two other of the co-defendants. I think that. All along, it's been expected that Bonnie Willis's strategy will be what it has been in her previous RICO cases where she kind of, you know, has a a very sprawling indictment that is uh, kind of slowly uh, moves down to a, a smaller core of people who are at the top uh, it seems like here that maybe Trump, Giuliani, Meadows, uh, maybe a few more. Um, so as we look forward to, you know, 2024, I think that I expect to, you know, see some more uh strategic plea deals reached in which you know the the prosecution team is trying to get that group of co-defendants down to a smaller group. Uh it, there's also the timing risk, Ben. We've we've kind of already talked about that a little bit with the federal trials, but uh, with a with a sprawling case like this, uh, I think that it is it would be very unusual for the case to go to trial within a year. And, and that's a big problem when the person who receives top billing on the indictment is the uh, front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. Uh, we've already seen that prosecutors this year have initially wanted a, a March date. Now they've said August. Uh, and, and it's to be seen, you know, exactly how effectively they will argue this timing issue to judge McAfee, but it could be an issue because. Trump's team has already said that if he is not tried prior to the 2024 election and if he wins then the prosecution would not be able to resume until 2029 uh and and I do think that he actually has a compelling argument if he does win that 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 prosecution effectively as against him has to be paused because of his duties as president uh and then finally you know With a, with a RICO case that is of this nature and of this size, there's a lot of the legal issues, some of which we've already seen raised and that prosecutors have kind of successfully Uh, Argued against. We saw that with uh, Chesbro and Powell. Uh, Prosecutors uh, successfully won some motions in which the defense was challenging kind of the uh, use of the RICO statute in Georgia. But I think the question for me looking forward is whether prosecutors can successfully show a jury that an enterprise like this that includes, you know, seemingly uh, disparate conduct and and actors who, you know, maybe have never met, have never really connected. Uh, can they really show that this was all a part of the same conspiracy, a part of the same enterprise, and connect these kind of more isolated aspects, you know, the the breach in Coffee County uh to the fake electors plot? Uh, I'm not uh I, I am optimistic that they will be able to effectively make that case to a jury Uh, some of the work that we've done this year for example with our series on coffee county has shown that uh, these parts of the alleged conspiracy that seemingly are more isolated uh, in fact you know have connections to uh uh, places that and and parts of the conspiracy that you would not expect but um so i think that that kind of sums up some of the risks and what prosecutors have done thus far and um I I think we'll learn more this year as we have some more hearings on on various matters.
0: Fabulous, Um, thank you all. Let's uh, bring on our cybersecurity crew. So I wanna start with Eugenia. Uh, We've managed to go a full hour and two minutes in uh, this live cast without mentioning generative AI which makes it the longest that any live cast or podcast or any kind of cast has gone in 2023 Mm -hmm. without mentioning chat GPT or generative AI. But uh, that's going to end now because the advent of uh, generative AI governments around the world have started to look at regulation of AI more seriously. And, um, You know, so, like, let's talk about the more significant initiatives, how much of this is posturing and garbage and uh, noise, and how much of this is serious, and what should we realistically expect over the next uh, few months. Thank
5: you, Ben. Um, Just as a way of a quick introduction, my name is Eugenia Lottri. I'm Law First Fellow in Technology, Policy, and Law. Um, I have to say, I've been surprised as well that we haven't talked about AI yet. I will change that. So, as you hinted at, the launch of ChatGPT was a real catalyst for attention on artificial intelligence and how to regulate it. Um, I think fairly quickly there seemed to be an agreement that the question was no longer if this technology should be regulated, but rather how will this technology be regulated? So, you know, we've seen a range of initiatives coming from governments around the world and the companies that are developing AI as well. Um, as I was preparing for this, you know, I was looking through some of the work that we've done at Lawfare over the past year on AI, and looking at some of the contributions that we've published, you can clearly see that there is this overarching tension that so many of us are struggling with right now, with between. How do you harness this technology uh, for in, for its innovation purposes? How do you maintain your edge while at the same time making sure that you're protecting users from harm and the various harms that can come from the deployment of AI? So I think that explains why we have seen a lot of voluntary guidelines, general guidance about how AI should be developed and how it should be deployed. So I'm not going to really sit here and go through the very, very long list of, you know all of the different statements, all of the different positions um, from all the different actors uh, when it comes to AI regulation. And instead, I want to focus on two of what I think are some of the most comprehensive initiatives. Um, One was the executive order on AI that was issued by President Biden at the end of October, and the other one is the recent announcement that the European Council and the European Parliament have reached a provisional agreement on the proposal on harmonized rules on AI. And the reason I focus on those is not only because they are both very ambitious and comprehensive, but also because they set the stage for a lot of the work that is yet to come and some of the issues that we're going to have to be, you know, to continue to look forward to in in the coming year. So if we look at the American executive order, it kicks off a lot more studies and guidance to better understand the implications of AI on a variety of issues, for example. And we can expect the results of some of this work to start surfacing next year. And similarly, now that there is this agreement in the EU, even if we don't have the full text yet, even if it will only enter into force in two years, uh, I think it's relevant to point out that the work of figuring out the implementation of the policy actually begins now. So we can, I think, hope for a discussion about AI regulation in the coming year that is a little bit more grounded on these policies that are actually coming out and that will need to be implemented. And I'm just going to wrap this up uh, by saying that a looming question that remains at least for me is what will be the usefulness of these policies, not just whether they're, you know, the right decision, but also how are they adjusting to a technology that is rapidly changing. So when we look, for example, at what happened to the Europeans who had been discussing the AI Act since 2021, and then this year were kind of caught by surprise by ChatGPT and had to include that, I think a question that we need to ask ourselves is, how do you future-proof these policies that are taking so long? Clearly, the, the, the difference of pace between regulation and uh, the technology is is going to remain a a challenge. So that's something that i I will look forward to in the coming year., um, and I'm gonna leave it at that for now.
0: Excellent, thank you. Um, all right, so Paul,, um, you know, we got a national security strategy this past year. And of course, Uh, everybody reacted to it like it was like a big clump of paper going thump on a table. And the Biden administration said, no, 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 it's really important. And people sort of said, yeah, but it sounds like a big clump of paper going thunk on a table. Um, And uh, we also got more interestingly, I think the first iteration of a set of implementation plans for it. So how big a deal is this? Is it like Something we should all be spending our time thinking about, or is it another administration saying cybersecurity is really important? Here's a big, you know, clump of aspirational paper going thunk on the table. And to the extent that it's more than that, what are some of the developments in those documents, particularly compared to prior versions, that actually seem substantial and important rather than just thunky?
6: So uh, thanks for that, Ben. Uh, Paul Rosenzweig, I'm a contributing editor here at Lawfare uh, and happy to uh, be joining you with this year-end review. Um, I think you're right, Ben, that very often strategies are nothing more than big thunks of paper. Um, you know, Some of them are more so. The quadrennial defense review often changes and pivots defense direction quite a bit. Uh, I would grade... The Biden uh, cybersecurity strategy, as a seven on a ten scale, where ten is truly impactful and zero is nothing but a thunk of paper on the so on that's the that's pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good. Um, and and I think there are a couple reasons for that. Uh, the first and foremost, at a kind of meta level, is that it's changed the conversation which is to say that for the last 20 years, all of the conversation about uh, cybersecurity in the United States has been about public-private partnerships and how we can work together and all of that. And all that's been good. I mean, we've made some real improvements in cybersecurity over the last 15 years with that as a model, greater information sharing between victims. Greater threat and intelligence information sharing between the government and the private sector, um, better development of of private sector enterprise security uh, uh, checklists and and metrics. All that's been very good. What has changed significantly, I think, in the in the new strategy is the recognition that you know voluntary public private partnerships have gotten us about as far as we can go, that we can no longer uh, rely exclusively on people's goodwill and self-interest to get us to the last bit. And the further recognition that where we are right now remains you know, simply untenable, that far too much of our national economy and national security is dependent upon uh, cyber infrastructure that is fundamentally weak. Um, so uh, emblematic of that are, I think, two pillars. I would call them of the Biden uh, cybersecurity strategy. Uh, the first is that government itself has to do more. Uh, it this uh, to protect American cyber infrastructure. Uh, this leans into a whole host of of policies uh, ranging from. Uh, more aggressive use of U.S. cyber command for disruption of of enemy activities to uh, greater use of economic uh, uh, provision, limiting uh, foreign trade, for example, CHIPS Act sort of thing, keeping the hardware parts of the technology from China who is perceived as a peer opponent. So item one on this is government- kind of stepping out and being more aggressive. And you can actually see that in some of the uh, ways in which Cyber Command, for example, has been deployed in the last year and is talking about deploying itself in the coming years. Uh, The other side of it is uh, that if the private sector won't do more on its own, we're going to have to push them to do that. and. Two aspects of that that are in the strategy are, first, a call to all the sector-specific agencies to more or less start trotting out their existing regulatory authorities more aggressively to uh, start putting in first standards and then regulatory mandates, possibly, for cybersecurity improvements. We've seen a lot of that uh, recently. The SEC, for example, is... uh, has has been uh, trialing a, a whole new set of cybersecurity limitations. There was a somewhat failed, but nonetheless significant attempt to regulate the cybersecurity pipelines um, post the colonial pipeline fiasco. And then the last piece of that uh, is the uh, administration's call for the initiation of a liability regime for software uh, that isn't up to snuff. Uh, that, as you know, and as listeners of Lawfare know, is the subject of a of a new kind of large scale uh, project that we're working on, on on Lawfare called Security by Design to try and explore what that means. But uh, the reason we're doing a project on it is because it's really, I think, a relatively uh, aggressive and transformative proposal. Yeah, you know, whether it comes to fruition or not, we'll see. But one of the reasons I give this whole thing a seven is that it didn't just land with a thunk; it landed in the pond, and we're seeing lots of ripples outbound from the from the strategy itself. That have some of which have yet to reach shore, and I'm going to get lost in the metaphor in a minute. But uh, but you know, it's 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 much it's more impactful than most of these.
0: Excellent. All right. So speaking of impacts that never seem to arrive, every year we begin the year with, this is the year we're going to have data privacy legislation in the United States. And so Justin Sherman, is this the year, 2024, that we're going to have data privacy legislation? And if so, will it be because of Uh, the shocking stories that you have been writing in Lawfare about data brokers.
7: Uh, This is like uh, when people make New Year's resolutions that just uh, do not come through and do it again and again. Um, Yeah, I mean, so an interesting year for data privacy, right? Because we have a new Congress this past year, right? Uh, A new Congress, but in uh, in 2022 had had ADPA, uh, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which... Uh, by many accounts right um you know all kidding aside was kind of the closest uh, as folks have said we've gotten to a comprehensive federal consumer privacy law now what i always say is if you're you know six inches closer to uh the end zone yet still very far away is that really any progress but um but you know it definitely has has been coming along so Uh, That was introduced in the last Congress. At the beginning of this year, there was a lot of discussion about reintroducing ADPA, about finally pushing this big privacy bill over the finish line. Uh, Congress had a number of hearings in the beginning of the year talking about privacy, you know, banging on scams and data brokers and this and that. And then that kind of went nowhere. Uh, There was no reintroduction of the comprehensive privacy bill there is no current comprehensive new privacy bill that's under development uh the adma stuff is kind of stalled so once again to ben's point we kind of have this this nice discussion and there has been a lot of progress right i don't want to knock the folks who've spent a lot of time pushing for this and there is a lot of bipartisan consensus as well there are a few democrat and republican holdouts for uh various uh in some cases ridiculous reasons but Um, But that's that. So nothing, nothing has happened there. The administration has said a little bit about privacy, uh, you know, to, to Paul's point, some of those data protection issues are roped up in the cyber strategy uh, and somewhat in the AI uh, executive order. Uh, President Biden wrote a wall street journal op-ed about privacy, but they've been pretty quiet on privacy. Overall, I would say, I, I kind of expected more explicit discussion of, of its importance uh, to tech competition and you know China issues and everything else, but uh, but there has been a little bit of data broker movement. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, is doing a new rulemaking to essentially look at companies that are acting like credit reporting data brokers but not presently covered. Uh, the FTC has been pretty active. Just today, actually, they announced that. There will be updated rulemaking to COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. So that's uh, incredibly significant because COPPA is an important law, albeit flawed. Uh, And uh, the last thing I want to mention is the AI executive order, Um, as we'd heard about, has lots of great provisions in it. One of them is to compel federal agencies, uh, except for national security ones, to come up with policies around the acquisition and use of commercially available information. So um, that's that's important stuff. The last thing I'll hit on here uh, is just data security more broadly. There's been a lot of interesting sort of strategic discussion about data free flow with trust, about cross-border data collaboration uh, in the G7, at the G20, with the quad. Um, especially with Japan as a leader on this, but there hasn't been too much policy change uh, on the U.S. domestic front. Uh, let's not forget that this was yet another, uh, you know, great, exciting year for the TikTok saga, uh, which has been going on for about four years now. And, um, you know, the, the poor editors who've had to uh, edit my pieces, but uh, something I've been writing about uh, as well with Lawfare for uh, several years now, Um, Earlier this year, the TikTok CEO finally got dragged in front of Congress and was shouted at uh, basically for a number of hours about everything from, uh, you know, important and concerning problems like uh, addictive behaviors and showing children, um, you know, sexual content and things like this, all the way to people basically just shouting about how, uh, you know, TikTok is uh, an arm of the the Chinese Communist Party. So I'll say we had this hearing and there was a lot of talk about what would happen, but that once again uh, went nowhere, which seems to be the theme here. Uh, there was the Restrict Act that was pretty interesting for, for folks who follow this that was introduced, uh, that basically would have permitted the executive branch to ban applications like TikTok because it would have amended uh, the... Uh, limitation in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act (IEPA) that says the president cannot ban the import or export of information, uh, and so that would have been changed. There was a big push for that bill, uh, yet it went nowhere fast. So, you know, TikTok remains operational. I'm not sure if uh, lawfare is on TikTok or not, but uh, but certainly we are not. Okay, um, but certainly you know if people want to use that app, it's still it's still functional. So for 2024, who knows what will happen, but um, there were a couple data privacy things, one of which I worked on crammed in the NDAA this year that is now law. So hopefully, uh, you know, some more room for discussion of those issues next year.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but
8: might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can
5: already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
1: and think about
5: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the
9: banner to go to Monday.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, Uh, we are gonna go to our final panel. Uh, So this is our foreign policy uh, panel and and I wanna start with the estimable Ashley Deeks. Ashley, first of all, introduce yourself for those who don't know you. but then uh, give us a sense about, uh, you know, the the area of emerging technologies in battlefields and uh, why you're thinking about that these days.
10: Sure. Great. Thanks. And thanks for uh, having me join this. I'm a professor at UVA Law School and a, a law firm contributing editor. Um, as I think the prior panel uh, just made clear, there has been a ton of conversation around cyber and AI in um, what I might call the civilian space. But I think maybe surprisingly, somewhat less conversation in the past year about military AI. Uh, so I want to. I've been thinking and writing a bit about this. Um, we have seen some technological developments of note on the battlefield, um, and I think it's clear that China and um, the US are, are focused on advancing their AI tools in the military and the intelligence spaces, um, even if they're not saying that much about it. Um, before I say something about this emerging tech, I do think it's useful and, and helpful to remember that traditional tech still does raise the kind of hard national security questions that Lawfare, it's really been Lawfare's bread and butter from the beginning. Um, in looking through the post from the past year, I was struck by this when I was reading Jeff Korn and Chris Jenks post about the decision by the United States to arm Ukraine with cluster munitions. So they used the debate about whether to do that to illustrate the persistent challenge of balancing military necessity against humanitarian imperatives during wartime. And this is a case in which the weapons would not be unlawful for the United States or for Ukraine to use. and. Uh, commentators on the site think that they would be highly effective, but it's clear that they raise important issues of collateral damage and the constant care obligation that states have to mitigate civilian risk. So that just seemed like a classic um, battlefield issue that I thought I would just uh, uh, foot stomp. um, So I myself am interested in whether and how states, uh, including the United States, are going to regulate high-risk uses of AI in the military setting, um, both as a domestic matter and as an international law matter. Um, And of course, the regulation of military and intelligence activities in the US system often happens after something emerges as a problem rather than in advance. Uh, But I'm trying to do some work to think about um, getting ahead of that. One one sign that Congress itself is actually thinking about the possibility of regulating certain uses of AI um, has arisen in the nuclear context where uh, some members of Congress put out a draft bill a couple of months ago that would prevent the president from spending money to use autonomous weapon systems in the nuclear command and control system that are not subject to meaningful human control. Now, the executive's policy currently does require human control over nuclear decision-making, but this is a case where Congress may want to embed this into law. Um, So Matt Waxman and I examined some of the constitutional arguments for and against uh, building such a system or having Congress uh, legislate this. Um, and, uh, And the executive, as we know, often asserts that the president has exclusive power to control tactics, including whether and how to use weapons. Um, And so we thought about ways in which uh, the executive might critique Congress's um, move here and how uh, the Congress could put itself on on stronger ground uh, if it adjusted how it tried to do this legislation. Um, And we also thought about whether the use of autonomy in a nuclear command and control system could actually be considered a presidential delegation of authority and whether Congress can limit the president's ability to delegate decision-making in this setting. Um, so once I'd been thinking about the uh, the domestic nuclear launch setting, um, I also then explored the international side of autonomy in nuclear want- launches in the wake of President Biden's meeting with President Xi in November. There were some advanced press suggesting that the two sides might try to reach a, a non-binding agreement to keep autonomy, uh, AI, out of nuclear command and control. It didn't happen. I think the, the agreement was just to keep on talking, um, but I, I posted to try to consider why China might not have been willing to sign on. Maybe it's because the US and China haven't had uh, sufficient numbers of conversations uh, directly about AI, for example. So maybe it was just too early. Maybe China saw this as not um, the US giving up anything in light of its its current policy. Um, there had been a post earlier in the year by Noah Green, who a contributor um, to Lauffer, who posted about how states should and could keep AI out of nuclear command and control. Um, and he suggested that the permanent five members of the Security Council try to agree to ban research and development of uh, autonomous AI-enabled nukes. I do think maybe that would be desirable, but I'm even more skeptical now of that as a, a, a normative proposal in light of Biden's meeting with with Xi. Um, but that, of course, the the international angle does lead to questions about whether and how the international community, uh, and here especially Russia, China, and the US are, um, are or are not gonna be able to regulate these systems more generally. Um, so I, I wrote a couple of posts forecasting where I think this might be going. Um, You hear a lot about analogies to the nuclear treaty regimes that say, you know, look, we could reach binding agreements in this very high stakes area. So why couldn't we do it here in in AI where there's also uh, high stakes? I think the better analogy is actually to uh, adversarial cyber operations. um, And there we have not actually seen new treaties and we've seen pretty limited progress on non-binding norms. So it may be that we see in the coming year a ban among states that don't fight many wars, that ban, for example, lethal autonomous weapon systems. Um, but I, uh, I'm i skeptical we're gonna see a lot of progress among the kind of major adversaries on this front. Um, I'll just say uh, kind of what I'm looking for in the coming year. One particular thing I'm interested in uh, looking out for is analysis of how Israel has deployed military AI in the Gaza conflict. Um, There have been a a few uh, news articles about it, but I haven't seen a a deep analysis of it. And I think people will be looking to see whether that use of um, pretty advanced AI, advanced Israel's strategic and tactical goals or not, and uh, to think about what lessons other states are gonna learn from, from Israel's experience on the battlefield.
0: Excellent, thank you. All right. Dan Byman, speaking of Israel and Gaza, we've had two major uh, conflicts, one in in Israel and Gaza and the other in Ukraine, that have been at the forefront of both US politics and foreign policy discussion over the past few months. Um, Let's talk about each conflict. how you see them progressing and what we can expect from them in 2024? Just a small subject.
11: So I'm Daniel Byman. I'm the foreign policy editor at Lawfare. Uh, so as you can imagine, the foreign policy essay series had a lot on both the Ukraine and um, the Gaza war. Uh, given the stages of the war, the the content was different. So. With Ukraine in 2023, uh, we saw, you know, over time, if you will, a kind of uh, maturation of the war. There was a lot more um, stasis on the battlefield, and a lot of questions were about um, um, the kind of enduring nature of the conflict. Well, with the Gaza uh, conflict, which began on October 7th, a lot of it was sense-making. How should we think about this conflict in general? Um, And these are, of course, tremendously important uh, conflicts. Uh, Ukraine, in many ways, has reshaped Europe, including uh, the map. And NATO has new members. And there is an energy to Europe and how it thinks about security that's frankly been been lacking since the Cold War. Um, In the Middle East, this war has also fundamentally reshaped things. Before October 7th in the Middle East, we were talking about uh, a Saudi-Israel um, normalization. We were thinking of Iran in a nuclear context. Uh, now it's much more back to how many people saw the Middle East 40 years ago with um, Israel and its complex with neighbors at the center. You have groups like the Houthis that are attacking Israel and um, in so doing disrupting international shipping which is leading perhaps to an international response. You have new conversations that are about, well, um, what will the future hold for the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, which seems like echoes a many past ones. So it's, it's both are truly transformative, it seems, at least um, for the coming years. Um, all these show something kind of obvious, but worth pointing out, which is that the United States, despite how much President um, uh, Trump and now President Biden want, is it can't focus exclusively on China That there is a rest of the world and this rest of the world forces itself on the American agenda and certainly American presidents have wanted to get out of the Middle East I think much of the American people want to get out of the Middle East but when conflicts happen there the United States uh, becomes more involved and uh, the United States has done so in the Gaza conflict both in terms of you know visits by the president himself in its immediate aftermath but Also, quite consequentially, deploying aircraft carriers and other military forces. Uh, So, there's a fundamental reality of the United States needing to focus on much of the world. Um, There is a different question of um, relations with allies, though, that come from these two conflicts. Um, In Ukraine, the United States has been leading its allies to bolster Ukraine, uh, to provide military support, to provide training, to otherwise back. Ukraine has conflict in Russia. Uh, with Gaza, the United States is not exactly alone, but is certainly um, a small, a part of a small list of countries that are supporting Israel. And the US is often doing it in opposition to many of its allies around the world. And this puts the United States in a much tougher spot. And already President Biden has tried to push Israel, especially on the civilian casualties issue, in part because of US isolation. Um, the last thing I'll say for now um, is the question of how the United States sees its alliances, which shows up in both of these conflicts. Um, to be clear, um, the United States is itself not fighting these wars, right? US troops are not shooting at Russians, US troops are not deployed in Gaza. But in so many other ways, the US is deeply involved in these conflicts. And we had a lot of essays on military training, for example um in the ukraine conflict we had essays about what sorts of arms to provide um and with um uh hamas uh jessica davis wrote a wonderful essay about going after hamas's money so the united states is playing lots of roles in terms of supporting combatants and trying in terms of trying to weaken us enemies um and one question that the united states is going to have to ponder is even though it's working very closely with Ukraine and very strongly supports Israel, uh, the United States and these countries have different objectives. And part of the U.S. goal is to support these countries, but part of it is actually to walk them back, to try to move them towards, um, and in some cases, less aggressive objectives, or as the U.S. would often think of it, more reasonable ones. And that creates tension with the very countries and leaders the United States is trying to help. Uh, So let me stop there, um, and I may have a few points beyond, uh, depending on how much time we have.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And Scott, um, talk to us about some of the other uh, um, major developments in foreign policy this year. War powers issues, economic statecraft, treaty law, NATO what are, what are we looking at? It's been a big year.
8: It certainly has. Uh, thank you for letting me bat clean up here, Ben. Um, we have a ton of issues we've talked about over the last year um, that a lot of us have worked on different capacities, but I'll, I'll focus on a few that I think are nat- notable. Um, we've begun to see some really interesting developments in the kind of war powers context, an area where, uh, you know, I think things are are really well trodden, but there's a lot of history still to excavate, to look at where we're seeing new challenges kind of emerge. On the historical front, we actually had a really uh, notable anniversary this past year, the 50th anniversary of the War Powers Resolution of 1973, one of the more influential and really kind of the only influential War Powers legislation uh, out there. Um, We saw a number of pieces looking at uh, what that might mean in different capacities. Matt Waxman and Patrick Holm did a really interesting look about how the whole reform effort it impacted U.S. alliance commitments and that, brought that into the present day in the context of contemporary alliance commitments and the credibility of those commitments in the context of Ukraine and other ongoing conflicts. Um, I wrote a piece about the historical legacy of the War Powers Resolution and the constraining effect it has had, if not the one intended by its authors. And so we've got that kind of historical lens we're looking at, but we're bringing them to more contemporary challenges because we've seen War Powers issues uprise in a number of interesting novel contexts. Um, that we haven't fully anticipated before or that raised some new questions. And we also are seeing it in new iterations of some old challenges. On the latter front, we, of course, more recently have seen these threats to U.S. military forces in the Middle East. Uh, We saw Jack Goldsmith uh, and other people comment on that, right on that for us, talking about the role that self-defense has come to play and how the United States thinks about its ability to engage in the use of military force. But then we've also heard the use of military force be raised in a number of other policy contexts like across the southern border in response to the fentanyl crisis uh, and other uh, drug issues um, that have come up and have been debated most recently in the context of uh, Republican presidential debates. We saw our own Ashley Deeks, who was just with us briefly, uh, and Matt Waxman write about that a few weeks ago, digging into what this would actually mean, how legal would this be, what legal questions would this sort of policy raise in different contexts, really putting meat on the bones for that part of proposal legally. Of course, is all on top of a lot of our Daily, uh, weekly conversations about these topics, whether it's on Rational Security, our weekly podcast, or on our daily podcast, where we really provide rolling, very contemporary commentary about things that are ha- as they happen on the ground, both from a legal and a policy perspective with various experts. Another bucket that's worth mentioning is this economic statecraft bucket. Um, we really have seen Really dramatic evolution in how we use economic statecraft tools, whether it is the use of sanctions in context raising, ranging from um, you know Russia and the variety of sanctions used there to crafting it around humanitarian assistance, trying to limit the negative impact and unintended impact sanctions can have on states like Afghanistan. We've seen the beginnings of the rollout of a revolutionary new outbound investment restrictions that we wrote about with a number of commentators here uh, here at Lawfare this year, use of export controls in all sorts of wild contexts, from cyber mercenaries to quantum computing to the transfer of sensitive technologies to China um, that we've talked about, handling of different central bank assets assets in the Afghan context to the Ukraine context, uh, and various proposals to use them for different purposes, um, uh, than, and, and what you do with them when they're not in the control, perhaps, of the state um, um, that that intuitively owns them. We've seen lots of debates. We've played host to ongoing debates of that for the several years I've continued into this year. Um, and then most notably, uh, or not most notably, but particularly notable development, I'll note is that we started a, a new series in our podcast that I'll flag uh, primarily led, uh, although I co-hosted, but primarily led with our contributing editor, Brandon Van Grack, Morrison and Forrester, uh, where we sit down with senior U.S. officials to talk over these economic statecraft policies. We've already spoken to assistant secretaries at the Treasury Department, at the Commerce Commerce Department, really digging into and understanding the granular day-to-day work these departments are doing in using these revolutionary new economic tools to advance U.S. foreign policy. And it is a uh, kind of worm-level view into the working of these offices what's going on that you can't find anywhere else that I found incredibly illuminating uh, and that we're building out in the year to come with a number of more interviews views doing that sort of work. Um, and the other area you flagged for us, I think, is, is, an, uh, is one worth touching on, which is this idea of the United States in, in the international order, whether it is our NATO alliances. Uh, something that we have looked at in the context of uh, Finland and Sweden acceding to uh, NATO in the past few years, thinking about the relationship between NATO and the Ukraine conflict. Um, We've talked about, of course, our general role in the international system, our relationship to things like the International Criminal Court uh, and international uh, human rights obligations, uh, whether it's in the context of War Crimes Act prosecutions or other items. These are all issues that we are always tracking. We have lots of commentary on. Um, But one thing we did see notable this year, uh, which I'll flag uh, as a little bit of our own, own log rolling um, we actually saw a uh, is something that doesn't happen every day. Um, we saw an idea that started on a lawfare article actually get turned into a law, uh, a, a proposal that I sketched out in a piece in, on NATO in 2018 about, uh, a provision con- Congress could enact to try and make it harder for presidents to withdraw from NATO. that has been kicking around three Congresses now did finally make it into the most recent NDAA as section 1250 uppercase a. Um, so, uh, you know, I, we, lawfare has its impact on legislation pretty regularly, but it's rare that we can claim it from, uh, inception, uh, To delivery. And and this is one case where I think we can make a credible claim for that, uh, at least on that sort of one provision um, that might play a major role if we find ourselves in a second presidency of our second Trump presidency, um, where we see a serious effort to withdraw from NATO, something we've heard former President Trump talk about just in recent weeks. Um, So lots happening in this space and lots to happen in the year to come.
0: Thank you, Scott. All right, before going to audience questions, um, I have a, uh, we have a a quick word from you all from uh, Patrick Cole, our esteemed uh, uh, Director of Development. Patrick, the floor is yours.
12: So I'm just gonna take a few minutes of your time to talk about the ways that you can support Lawfare, why it's meaningful um, and why it is important for all the work that we do. Um, and so I'm going to take my camera off here so that oh, there we go. Uh, so that you can see the slide deck here. um so as uh, as we've heard from Congressman Kinzinger, as we heard from all of the panel sessions that we've had, um, national security issues have been at the forefront of current events and have been at the forefront of policy issues this year. And that's going to continue to be the case in twenty twenty four. Um, And that's why Lawfare produces content that is timely and is relevant um, and is important for an audience that is not just at the highest echelons of government, but is relevant um, to readers who don't necessarily have a background in national security. Um, And we produce content that is impactful um, and read and referenced widely. Um, And I've provided a few examples here. Um, So our own Scott Anderson, who you heard from earlier, he uh, he put out a proposal um, in 2018 um, for, to uh, prevent the president from being able to unilaterally withdraw from NATO. He published that on Lawfare, um, and we saw a similar element of that um, in the recently uh, passed National Defense Authorization Act. Um, we also saw uh, uh, Jen Easterly, the Secretary of CISA, tweet out one of Lawfare's pieces around. Um, whether or not AI can self-regulate. And then we saw The Economist mention um, Lawfare's tracker on section three. So we're seeing Lawfare being mentioned and quoted at a high level, and we're seeing it being tracked and mentioned within the media ecosystem. And then more broadly, we're seeing that Lawfare gets about 2 million downloads from its family of podcasts. Um, Our published content on the website has about half a million views per month. Um, and then, you know, really, we're not a necessarily an insular DC organization that only gets, you know, it, it readers, its readership and its viewership from inside the Beltway. Um, like many of you that are on the Zoom, our readers come from places like Texas, from Florida, from California, from New York, um, and even outside the US from around the world. And they come and that some of them have a background in, in national security and some of them just wanna know how national security issues are going to impact their daily lives. Um, and then if we go to the next slide, you know, as a 501c3, in order for us to be able to produce that content for you to be able to provide the nonpartisan scholarship and analysis on national security law and policy that we do, we, per, we rely on financial contributions from um, our supporters. Um, So, if you are already supporting Lawfare, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, And if you are not a current supporter, this is now a really good time to become one. Um, And there are a few different ways that you can actually contribute to Lawfare and become involved. Um, And if we go to the next slide, we can talk about some of those. Um, So you can start out small. Um, You can become a material supporter via Patreon or Substack. Our material supporters give as little as $1 a month, some of them give a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, You can be a non-recurring charitable donor through our GiveButter. Um, And then we're also going to be launching um, for contributors who want to give a little bit more money, uh, our Law Leadership Council. Um, And this is gonna launch at the beginning of next year um, for donors who want to contribute uh, $2,500 or more annually. Um, It'll have new opportunities to um, engage with lawfare, engage with other people who care about national security issues just like you, um, as well as provide um, lawfare with the sustainable funding that it needs to continue to provide an impact. Um, And you might be asking yourself, well, why? Why does that matter? Um, As we've discussed, lawfare is free and nonpartisan and available to the public. Um, And that's not typical of, of every think tank or every organization but we believe in providing free content that is useful to anyone from, a, whether they're a national security expert or just wanna learn more. Um, and you know, we provide opportunities to engage with our experts, to engage with the content, to learn from each other. Um, and our editors are a lot of fun to interact with. I can attest to that. Um, and so by participating with Lawfare, by contributing, um, you become part of that. Um, and then finally, you know, when you, contribute to lawfare when you start to join our community of contributors. Um, You join a community that really is unique. We've heard a lot about democracy over the last hour. And really, I can't say it enough that democracy is intrinsic to our national security. Um, And you join a community that really believes we need a citizenry that that is engaged and a government that relies on the type of rigorous analysis um, and innovative thinking that lawfare produces. Um, And so if that sounds like something that you want to be a part of, something that you would like to join, uh, please reach out. Um, I would love to talk to you. I'll put my contact information in in the chat, along with ways that you can support Lawfare. Um, And if you just want to talk about Lawfare's content or even which of Ben's dog dog t-shirts is your favorite, I'm also always happy to have that conversation as well. Um, So with that, I'm going to pass it back to Ben and thank you so much.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Patrick. This uh, We have several questions in the queue. And I, as we tend to, I want to get through all of them. Um, uh, and uh, the first question, I want to route to Quinta because she is so good at staying optimistic all the time. Linda asks, given everything, it can be hard for average citizens to remain optimistic. What can we do to fight for democracy, support Ukraine, and counter the forces of authoritarianism at home. Quinta, who never uh, has a a down word to say ever, uh, what do you think? Um, And then anybody else who wants to chime in um, after uh, Quinta delivers her ray of sunshine, uh, feel free
2: yeah, so, if you're not familiar, uh, I am a very pessimistic person, which is the joke that Ben is making currently. I'm not usually the optimistic one. Um, I think there are two main things. Um the first is, you know, this this sounds easy, but keep yourself informed, right? Um there's democracy depends on an engaged citizenry. Um, that's, harder than ever in many ways. There's more information available, but it's also harder to find good information um, and to distinguish good information from bad. Um, But I do think that, you know, even as news seems overwhelming, figuring out a way to, you know, make sure that you're engaged, but not engaging, you know, so much that you're burnt out, keeping track of what's going on um, is really really key, and that stands both for you know international and national news, but also local news, right? Um, I think that one of the things that people can kind of lose track of sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as well, um, when when we think about you know the crisis facing democracy, is to think of it in big sweeping terms about you know the presidential election. That's important, but a lot of the problems that we're facing right now as a country, I think, stem from a sort of uh, lack of investment in democratic institutions at the local and state level. Um, so keeping an eye on that is crucial. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, to support journalism. Um, part of the reason that that we're in this problem, in, the, in this crisis is because news organizations are really, really struggling. Um, Of course, I would be remiss if I did not uh, plug Lawfare, but that also means, you know, local news, um, a lot of publications are really struggling right now and having a healthy media environment and uh, environment where, you know, people who hold positions of public trust know that they will be held to account by people who are trying to, you know, inform citizens about the truth is really, really important. So subscribe to your local paper.
0: Anybody have any other uh, uh, staying optimistic either domestically or internationally thoughts? I'll just say, uh, you know,
1: having thought a lot about democracy recently, there are things that we can do to just keep the building blocks of democracy healthy and going. And you know, one of the things that I've been really alarmed by um, is the mass exodus of volunteers who are working on elections, just poll workers you know, volunteer to be a poll worker. It's not a glamorous job, but the people who are experts and have been manning those ranks for years and years a lot are leaving because they're afraid. Um, so I think it, it's worth looking at the the more technical aspects and uh, the more institutional boring things about democracy that, you know, that's the only thing, those are those are the only things that are standing between us and uh, fascism, not to be overly dramatic. We, we were supposed to be optimistic. Um, but uh, I think that's that's one small concrete doesn't seem like it's gonna you know make a dent in the bigger problems, but I think it does add up.
0: Auntie Ruakonen, you have uh, a pair of questions.
9: Yes. Good evening, and uh, thank you. Uh, so, first of all, the Estonian MOD recently published a discussion paper titled "Setting Transatlantic." Atlantic defense up for success, a military strategy for Ukraine's victory and Russia's defeat. Uh, why do you think formulating and communicating a clear strategy for Ukraine's victory and the steps to get there are so difficult for US and NATO? Would you like me to go ahead with the second one as well?
0: Now, h- hold on, let's, let's address yeah. that one first. So uh, uh, first of all, on this piece, uh, on this, I, I have asked, um, Uh, former President Ilvis of Estonia to write a piece for us uh, about this uh, Ministry of Defense report. So we may have uh, interesting things to say about it on Lawfare in the coming uh, days and weeks. Um, Scott, do you have thoughts on Auntie's question, why why, uh, people other than the Estonians have such trouble uh, formulating strategic thoughts on this?
8: It's a fair question. Um, Look, I mean, I don't think there's a a lack of strategic thoughts (laughs) about ways that might benefit or approach how to do this conflict. Um, You know, I think people have trouble sometimes committing to one particular approach for saying here is the national strategy. Um, And that's in part because it's a complicated, fluid situation, and in part because the domestic constraints are substantial, as we're seeing in the debate over Ukrainian assistance. Um, You know, I think there is a reasonable criticism to be made that uh, the Biden administration uh, and some European allies may have treaded towards overpromising what they would be able to deliver earlier in this conflict. I think they did it strategically to try and send a deterrence message to some extent. They probably did it knowingly, um, but there are real domestic constraints we always knew were going to be on the horizon. I wish they weren't there. Many people wish they weren't there, and I don't agree with them. But they're realities. Um, and so the margins of what you're going to be able to accomplish and what you can get through are always going to be very slim. And that makes strategic planning really difficult. Um, you know, this is why that for a long time you had a the idea of uh, partisan politics ending at the water's edge. Um, it was a little more of an idea than a reality, but more of a reality than it is now. That's why it was important. It allowed you to to steer longer term foreign policy decisions because you had more bipartisan consensus around it when you lack that. Which we do right now um it makes it really difficult to do those things um rebuilding that consensus is important um i think that's why it's important you have voices in both parties taking up that mantle and fighting for it um and we have to bear in mind that you know that policy is still the clear consensus of a majority of both parties in Congress um, it, it is being you know held out by a fairly insular group in one chamber um, that is really driving a lot of the policy in this area, but they have kind of disproportionate voice. Um, I think you have to keep fighting that political fight, get what progress you can get through there, but it, it does make that long-term strategic planning very difficult. I just think that's a reality of this sort of conflict that we have to be able to live with. doesn't mean you can't win it doesn't mean you, it's not worth fighting, but it is a reality you have to acknowledge.
0: On your second question.
9: So Russia sees itself at war with the collective West and is mobilizing its defense industries accordingly. What would it take for the U.S. and its European allies to finally wake up to this reality and become the arsenal of democracy that Ukraine and indeed Europe itself needs to win the war and also deter future aggression?
0: So I'll take a stab at this one myself. Um, So first of all, I think there's, two problems that you've identified. One is the political will and that, and the second, and these are different problems. And the second is, you know, having the defense industrial base to support the political will. And these are, these are not the same problem. So for example, in the United States, we have, and I think in Europe too, um, we have a slackening degree of political will, mostly on the side of one political party, but as Scott says, that that part of that party wields disproportionate political influence. Um, but at the same time, you also have a long period of these defense industry plants that have just not been producing at the level that it requires to uh, backfill large number of uh, uh, arms caches when we're giving a lot of stuff to Ukraine. Um, I do think those problems are different. The answer to one of them is to uh, rebuild American industrial capacity and for Europe to rebuild European industrial capacity and specifically in the defense sector and to annoy a lot of people many of them on the political left who do not like the defense industries. Uh, if you want to successfully help Ukraine fight wars so that we don't have to, you got to have the defense industrial base to support it. Um, By the way, this is super good Keynesian economics in the sense that what you're actually doing when you're arming Ukraine is you're giving them stuff that you know, from U.S. or Western military uh, uh, armaments that we are then replacing with more modern armaments. You're not actually manufacturing, except for some uh, artillery stuff, you're not really manufacturing it for them. You're managing it to replace stuff you're giving them. So it's it's a good program in modernization for Western militaries. And it's very good for domestic uh, jobs. It's had a measurable impact on uh, uh, the US economy this past year. Uh, A lot of people don't like it, I don't care. Uh, That's the one side of it. The other side of it is the more difficult problem, honestly. It's just the slackening of the political will. And ironically, this has not occurred on the side of the left, which doesn't like the military buildups, but stuff it's occurred on the right, which loves defense spending. They just don't like Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, you really have this, it's quite paradoxical. It's very frustrating for those of us who, you know, really don't care who we have to do business with in order to keep Ukraine fighting, but you know, really, really don't want, as Adam Kinzinger said, to sell out the Ukrainians, you know, after we sold out the Afghans, after, you know, just don't want to do that again. Uh, it's very, very frustrating, but I do think it's two separate problems and we have to keep them straight, keep them separate. What will it take to do the second one? Uh, look, uh, some people have to lose and some people have to win political fights. It's just that simple. All right, uh, Josh asks, any thoughts from anyone about whether or not Mark Meadows is cooperating, whatever that might mean, with Jack Smith? Uh, Roger and Anna, do either of you have thoughts about Mark Meadows' cooperation, whatever that might mean?
3: Well, the last I heard, and maybe Anna has more information on this than I do, but um, the last I heard, it sounded like he had uh, been given something that sounded like use immunity, and uh, had either testified before the grand jury or spoken to Jack Smith under those circumstances. Um, I I don't I haven't heard anything beyond that. Uh, but, that, you know, that would be important, both in terms of locking him in on, and, and it sounded like it, it was helpful information. Um, in that vein, the other sort of recent positive developments, I mean, Representative Kinziger mentioned that uh, there was uh, information on Trump's phone that was obtained. It, it was, I, I think it was a White House phone that he used and the government recently had to give a notice about expert witnesses they wanted to call. One will be an expert who will testify about what they found on, Trump's, on the White House phone that Trump used, um, which, which apps were open, uh, what images he was seeing uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th itself, as well as the phone of another person they called Individual One. And I have no idea who that is, but I hope with all my might that it's Dan Scavino. Oh, just one other thing also that was new to me, at least, was when Jenna um, Ellis pled... She also had that little tidbit about Dan Scavino saying, at a, I think it was like a Christmas party, saying, "We're not leaving. It doesn't matter what happens with the courts or something to this effect." Anna will remember it better, but we're we're not leaving. It's a very very powerful thing to a jury. It it makes it so simple. Um, it's 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 on the level of with the Proud Boys when Enrique Tarrio telegrams the the board of elders and says make no mistake we did this you know it's a real uh, a, a real smoking gun
0: all right anna do you have additional thoughts with respect to
4: the fulton county case uh i my most recent understanding is that meadows is not someone who has been offered you know a deal um This week, we saw that there, uh, the Eleventh Circuit uh, rejected his bid to move his state criminal charges to federal court. Um, So I don't know to what extent that might, you know, change some of the calculus for Meadows. I don't, I don't know yet if he's going to appeal. I, I would assume that he, that he might appeal that, that judgment to the Supreme Court. But I think that, you know, Meadows. It, it might be something that once his removal stuff kind of gets more settled, I, I think that just as speculation, it might be that uh, his team does maybe approach Fulton County prosecutors and, and try to see if they can work something out. I, I don't know. But um, it, as of right now, as I understand it, he has not been one of the defendants who has been offered a
0: deal. All right, we are on our last question and we're only three minutes over, which is you know, kind of impressive. Uh, and this question has Scott Anderson's name written all over it. Josh asks, what are people's, and by people he means Scott Anderson, thoughts about the effectiveness of sanctions on Russia and in particular energy exports?
8: Yeah, so this is a really tricky issue um, that we wrestle with a lot, a lot, actually a lot last year when the sanctions were first rolled out and we've kind of been continuing to watch it. And I think actually this is a good question. That's time for an update. I, it's something I've been toying around with that for a podcast. Uh, in the early new year about who to bring on to do this. We've gotten these media reports just in the last week or two talking about, hey, the Russian economy is doing great. Look at these consumers able to get the items. Look at how these Western companies are being squeezed on their way out of Russia and basically liquidated in a way that just gives capital to, Putin and the Russian regime and his cronies, all which is is true to some degree. Um, But I think it's easy to lose track of uh, actually what the medium to long-term impact on the Russian economy is and is projected to be, and then how sanctions were used in the context of this conflict. Um, You know, sanctions were used in kind of two ways. One was a a messaging way. Early on, there's an effort to impose such a wild wave of crazy sanctions that were so oppressive and so damning that you were going to hopefully scare Russia into trying to end its its invasion of Ukraine right Uh, or in the first few months of the conflict to rapidly wind it down you saw this rapid escalation of efforts this rapid effort to signal we're going after more and more oligarchs expansion into different sectors Um, a lot of this was about messaging not actually about immediate implementation because there were shades of gray of implementing all of these measures. And this energy uh, sector is one of the biggest shades of gray, of course, because it took a long time for those sanctions to fully come on board. And a lot of them have never come fully on board. And that's because Russia is a major economy. You, you can't just cut it out of the global economy without having huge ramifications for the rest of the world. And there were big concerns about what severely hindering the economy of Europe, uh, what's fairly hindering the economy of the United States would do for support for the efforts to support Ukraine in the conflict, and um, not to mention the ability to support Ukraine in the conflict. And so there was a balancing act between really aggressive signaling about what the West is going to do, is willing to do, and then an effort to kind of softly introduce it in a way that mit- mitigated many of those external measures. Um, On top of that, you had Russia just really well insulated and in a position with substantial foreign currency reserves built up because it anticipated something like this happening for the prior at least eight years since it seized Crimea, because that is what, how the West responded to Crimea in a very small way. And if they're going to do something more dramatic, the West is probably going to do something very similar in a bigger way. So Russia built up a lot of tools that allowed it to insulate its economy, at least in the short to medium term, from a lot of the immediate ramifications of that. We still saw surges in consumer prices, lack of availability of core products for a while. Um, but those things have kind of massaged around, as you've seen, Internal Russian industries replaced lost import uh, capabilities. You've seen them shift to substitute goods from like India and China, other economies that don't participate in the sanctions. So all these consumer goods are are still getting through. The key point, though, is that Russia's economic world has shrunk dramatically. It's continuing to shrink. You can always seize so many Western companies and squeeze them bone dry (laughs) before you run out of Western companies. Also, is any Western company ever going to come and do business in Russia again? It's going to be a hard sell, when they're being liquidated on these terms, right? Um, this is what Russia is doing. It is the playbook that we saw a lot of economies, particularly ones moving towards a more uh, socialist or communist model government or state-run economy in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, turn towards. And it had long-term economic ramifications of where they're bad. And those were cases where you had the Soviet Union in many cases propping them up, which Russia doesn't have here. Um, All projections point the Russian economy is set to shrink over the next several years, that most quality of life for Russians is set to shrink. And then particularly, like, export controls are set to really, really limit Russia's ability to upgrade or even maintain a lot of its key infrastructure and military infrastructure. Some of that's going to be substituted and shifted elsewhere, but not all of it can, at least not as efficiently, not as high quality. Um, So. The real question now is how sustainable are these sanctions and how much will is there to maintain them in the medium to long haul, because that's where they're going to have the most damage. Um, That's where Russia is really going to be seriously impeded in the longer term. But it's a multi-year endeavor, not a one to one and a half year endeavor, which is the only window we're seeing now. Um, You still see changes in that period, but those are the ones where Russia's best position to insulate itself against. The real story is going to be written in the course of five to 10 years.
0: We are going to leave it there. Uh... Thanks to you all, to to all the panelists, and thanks to everybody who joined us uh, uh, from all of us at Lawfare, wishing you the happiest of holidays and best of New Year's. Cheers. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Hey, folks. If you listen to these questions and thought, I would like to ask questions at the next Lawfare year-end event, you can do it. Become a material supporter of Lawfare at lawfaremedia.org support. You know you want to, you know it's time. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.